Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. This is episode eight for November 6, 2018. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and thanks so much for joining me. This is an exciting show for me because, as you all know who listen to this show, it is a tech podcast. But today, this is my excuse to talk about something fun on the show. Not that tech isn't fun, but movies are more fun. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, movies, classic movies specifically, and we're going to relate it to tech in terms of a, a sad demise that we had to witness recently, the end of the Filmstruck service, and we'll get into all that. But let me first introduce my two guests. First off is Kristen Lopez. She is a freelance pop culture essayist. Her work has appeared in The Hollywood Reporter, Slash Film, and Roger Ebert. She is also the co-host of the feminist film podcast, Citizen Dame. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for thinking I was cool enough to have on the show. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll see how cool we are after a while. (laughs) And my next guest is Lawrence Carter-Long. He's a disability activist by day and a film fan all the time. In 2012, he curated The Projected Image, a month-long festival of films on Turner Classic Movies covering the changing face Still of jealous of that. in film. <laughs> Me too. I'm glad it was he was there to enlighten I, us. I Hi, keep, Lawrence. I keep hoping hey. to CM about doing that again <laughs> so that I can you know, That was three years of my life and uh, uh, putting that whole thing together. And I'll, yeah, happy to talk about that in a little bit. And they've promised me that we'll do more. So, uh, you know, I will definitely be keeping you two in mind if uh, that thing starts to move forward. That's awesome. So the real reason I wanted to get us together is to talk about Filmstruck. I had been wanting to find an excuse to talk about classic movies on this show for a while. And sadly, Filmstruck uh, leaving the scene, thanks to an announcement by Time Warner over the we- last week, uh, means that that is going to happen uh, sooner rather than later. And for those of you who don't know, Filmstruck is a streaming service, a partnership between Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection that provided access to art house films and indie films, international films, and from a TCM perspective, classic films. And one of the most significant elements from my point of view about Filmstruck was that it was an answer for cord cutters who wanted to get their classic film fix. And TCM only being available in cable systems meant that, for at least in my particular case, you had to choose between cable and all those channels you didn't want and Filmstruck, where it was all movies all the time. And, and sadly, Warner has decided that Filmstruck is no more. So I guess let me just start by getting your reactions to, to that decision. Does it matter? Is it important? Were you Filmstruck fans? I started Filmstruck uh, late in the game. I remember when, when TCM announced it, I'd, I'd go to the festivals every year, and I'm, I I hate to say I'm an insider because it sounds like such a pretentious thing to say, but but I get to hang out with the TCM crew when, I, when I'm down there. And so I, I got to see them build this up, and, and they talked about how this was a labor of love, and you can really see that. TCM is one of the, the only networks I can think of where if you are into the network as a whole, then these are not faceless people that you're dealing with. You know, it's not like, you know, if you know, you know, Disney's a corporation. There, where's, there's some hourly employee that's going to answer your phone call at a call center. TCM's not like that. You, most of the people, even like casual fans will know, you know, who they're talking to and, and who's involved there. So for me, it's just, it's upsetting not only that it's going away, but also the people that, you know, I know that I consider friends that are going to be affected by by having their jobs probably, you know, be displaced or laid off or, or anything like that. Um, 
as a service, I mean, I'm a film critic, so I rail every day about how the new group of film critics that are rising up don't really know what film history is pre-1980. And so Filmstruck, Filmstruck was one of the, was, was pretty much the only place where if you, you wanted to say you were a film buff, you could at least have that. And so, you know, there's a lot of internal stuff going on, especially with Warner, that just makes me think like, what are you, what are you thinking, guys? What are you thinking? <laughs> I know what they're thinking. I don't want them to think it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I'm right there. I'm right there with Kristen in terms of what they're thinking and and what I wish they weren't thinking. I was an early adopter of Filmstruck. Um, I subscribed to it as soon as I was able. I think before it even went on the air. And um, I think the 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 one of the joys, in addition to the culture um, that kind of comes with uh, TCM and, and by extension Filmstruck, um, which is this really amazing thing that that I, I first encountered online when we were doing the projected image project that you mentioned earlier. Um, we were doing Twitter chats um, um, along with the TCM party folks um, every night that we would do the screenings. And I got to know these wonderful people um, as a result of doing those chats, and 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 the same was true with with Filmstruck and the and and the film festival, you know, that they do. Um, there's a real community that that has risen up that are passionate and dedicated um, as any group that you're ever going to find anywhere. And and so I think what's what's really sad is for those people who really love classic film and, and love the, the you know, Criterion collection and all the extras that can be found on Criterion, that's just one less place for those folks to kind of hang out and to have this, this unprecedented access to the kinds of movies that, um, that we love to see. Do you feel like Filmstruck, and, and I think I might know the answer, but do you feel like Filmstruck was a natural extension of TCM? Did it feel like more of the same, or did it have characteristics that were different since it had that criterion component as well? It's it's uh, something that we saw, if you followed it from its origins, transformed. So when it started out, and the reason I didn't adopt it early on was that it started out as a place to stream the criterion an art house obscure type of, of films like that and I was thinking okay well Criterion's got some great stuff but I'm not really big on cult film or you know foreign cinema is something I should probably know more about but it wasn't something that I was going to spend $8.99 $10.99 a month to get and it wasn't until TCM actually decided to start going forward and putting some of their content on there and really upping the production in terms of behind the scenes stuff getting getting the Robert Osborne intros on there trying to get old bonus features from DVDs that were out of print and put those on that it really became this all-encompassing um, community of trying to get audiences that were into classic films and and what that word meant it didn't just mean black and white it would it would mean you know classic foreign cinema horror um the criterion stuff so it ended up transforming outward into something that did feel like tcm it felt like that natural progression of if you couldn't use the watch tcm app which i keep saying again and again i'm not understanding why they don't do more with that because it's fantastic um and it would seem rather low impact at this point um 
but it, it did feel like that. It didn't start out that way, but I think once they realized what they wanted to do and do that balancing, that it, it found it hit its stride. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I think that was largely dictated by the community itself. People that that are are part of TCM or the the TCM community. They're not shy about what they like, and that's one of the reasons that, that I wanted to do the festival that we did with them. And, and so people let Turner know what it was that they wanted and let Warner Brothers know what they wanted, and, and they listened. Uh, they were very receptive, I, I think, to um, what the wishes were of the audience, and they really catered and, and built that community around those wishes. So it, it, it had, um, um, you know, by the time we got to where we are now, sadly, I think the best of both worlds. It, it, you could get um, um, a large selection of classic films with those extras, and you could also get your art house and your subtitled um, as well. And it was largely dictated by the fans. I think a lot of people would say, well, let me put, let me just put that another way. I think some people might say, well, why don't you just go back to watching TCM? And from my point of view, when Filmstruck came around, the thing I was excited about was not even so much the content because I could watch TCM. I had a cable subscription. What I was excited about was that it looked like Warner was thinking into the future when cable subscriptions would be less desirable, more cord cutting would happen, and where are we going to put those classic films and where are people who want classic films going to watch them? And it seemed like Filmstruck was very forward thinking because my my worry has always been that TCM is a channel at some point would stop being viable. And I'm, I'm really kind of surprised that the service died before uh, the channel was compromised in some Well, way. that's that's the frightening thing we're all trying not to jinx by saying, you know, this... Sorry exactly. about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but it, it's, it's a thing, you know, I, I remember, I think it was a year or two ago at one of the film festivals, they were bringing up how, you know, they are the only network that doesn't have commercials. You know, they don't promote anything that is not TCM branded. And, you know, you get the doomsdayers. You've got, I get them every every year. You know, TCM showing newer movies. They're going to start showing commercials. It's autom- automatically, it's going to be, if you, if you live in the UK, TCM there is not what TCM is here. They show a lot more modern content than they do here. And so a lot, that's, that's been the fear, you know, that... A lot of this has to do with the recent merger between AT&T and Time Warner and that they didn't feel that this was something they should invest in, you know, how soon until they decide we want this channel to put commercials on or something. Um, But when, when people say, why don't you just go back to TCM, I think what that's a very simplistic way of saying we don't want to hear your problem. And we live in a world right now where the Academy Awards are trying any way they can to get viewers because so many people are fleeing cable. Um, And so cable, as it is right now, is not sustainable. As we're seeing, prices are going up. People want less channels. So a site like Filmstruck needs to exist if you want classic cinema. Or if you want, you know, people to stop grousing about it, then go to Netflix, go to Hulu, and tell them to maybe invest in classic film. Because if you go on Netflix right now, and you want to find a movie that's pre-1980, it's slim pickings. I I think there, I actually had a friend take a picture of their classic, quote-unquote classic section. It was nothing made before 1980. Well, there, in fact, there's a, a, a famous post, uh, what's leaving Netflix this month? So there's a lot you can mourn, whether you're a fan of classics or anything else. I don't think of Netflix as a channel where you watch movies, and I don't think a lot of people do, any, any movie that is in, of any age whatsoever. 
And Hulu, I think I'm not a subscriber to Hulu, so I don't know what that landscape is, and maybe you can talk about it, but uh, Amazon is probably your only game in town, but that's not at all curated, and there's no guarantee of the longevity of titles on that site. I mean, and then, you know, just just to throw something else on the fire, uh, a lot of the movies, because of the way movie catalogs have changed and transmogrified ownership over the year, an awful lot of the classic movies that we talk about are actually owned by Warner Warner Brothers, uh, the, the MGM Ar- uh, library, the RKO, the Warner Brothers, and Warner Archive, the service that they have c- created to do video on demand and then ultimately put on streaming. You know, that's st- I would worry about them as well because they've struggled and they've had to change their business model in various ways over time. Yeah, the absolute thing I think that set um, uh, uh, Filmstruck apart was the care and feeding and the curation. You know, the the real. Um, attention to detail that they would put, you know, with their festivals, their their uh, retrospectives of different directors or different themed programs. Um, um, you know, I recently they did a, a whole um, curated sort of panel on on uh, uh, mental health in film and mental illness in film. Um, and, and so you had an opportunity to kind of go in there to those different menus and those different folders and and see kind of a mini film festival um, based on whatever that director might be or the topic area might be in a way that you're never going to find on something like a Netflix or, or an Amazon. And, and it, that, I think, is what set it apart and made it exciting and, and, and made the fans of Filmstruck so passionate about um, the, the service. Um, I was an early cord cutter. I, I cut the cord as soon as I could because I was tired of the shopping channels and, uh, and really wanted to focus on, you know, the type of media that was useful to me, both in my work and, and, and just sort of in the, um, in the side projects that I did. And um, cutting the cord, you know, gave me an opportunity to do that. And so it was, it was nice to be able to craft kind of my own video package. And, and as a, but as a part of that, one of the downsides was you, you weren't able to stream TCM um, as it was airing live uh, without getting a, um, a service like Sling TV or one of those, which, you know, would add 25, 30 bucks to your subscriptions. And, and with that, you might as well get uh, cable. So, so, you know, each one of these things, I think, is still being worked out economically by the powers that be and the people that own them. And it's just uh, sad. It's going to leave a huge gap, I think, in, in terms of um, the depth and quality of programming. Well, now the TCM app, which which Kristen mentioned, and that's an interesting case too, because that literally was an app like many other cable, like many other channels have, an app that allows you to watch, allows you to watch TCM on your iPad, or if you if you send it to your television, you can do it that way. But as Kristen said, they haven't really done a lot about that app in terms of promotion or in terms of putting it on the number of platforms. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I always say I, I the saddest thing that I did is I recently cut cable and because of that I can't use the Watch TCM app, which I would actually use a lot more than Filmstruck because you get the intros and um, the outros. And I do have Sling now, which does not, I haven't found one that has intros, so I can't say whether they do or not, but I, I don't know why there's this hesitancy to further the app specifically. I don't know if it's a, a issue with rights or, or what, because I know 
I would love them to do something like what HBO does, which HBO has HBO Go and HBO Now. One is for cable subscription. One is for if you just want the standalone channel. Um, and both of them offer on-demand content. So I, I don't know why there's this hesitancy to, to push forward with that. Um, since it started, too, they also have a real limited amount of um, things that it runs on. I know certain DVD players and, and certain apps and uh, certain TVs don't don't have the ability to use it. So I don't know why they don't go further with that because I think it would appease a lot of people who just want the TCM content. Um, and it would be, again, I mean, I don't know what the, I'm not a economics or accounting person. I don't know what it would make mean logistically, but I mean, it's something they already offer for cable. Um, and with so many other places doing standalone apps it would just make sense to me at least yeah they didn't really put the tcm app on the big platforms like roku or amazon or apple tv you can't just download the tcm app and add it to your nbc app or your fox app or your national geographic app uh that it's an app that lives on mostly portable devices, and then you can cast it, whether it's through AirPlay or Chromecast or something, to your device. I haven't even tried all those I have I have a Fire TV, so I know it downloads yeah. onto that, but I mean, if you don't have a Fire Stick or a Fire TV, then, you know, you're kind of screwed. Okay, so it is on the Amazon platform. Yeah. See, that, that's the thing. It's not even clear. Like, I think most people who aren't living or wanting to live in sort of classic film world, they don't even really understand the, the amount, the number of limitations that there are because they think, well, can't you just turn on whatever device you have, whether it's a Fire Stick or a Roku or an Apple TV, can't you just get what you want on there? And the answer oftentimes is no, because they haven't put it there. Filmstruck had an app, uh, but obviously that's not a problem anymore for them because they don't have an app anymore. But what about, say, uh, Warner Archive? I've noticed some interesting things. As I mentioned, Warner Archive is a video-on-demand service. They even tried to have their own streaming service for a while. And now, interestingly enough, a lot of that content has popped up in the uh, Apple iTunes store, which is kind of the reason I became aware of it, because I have an Apple TV. But it seems to me that if Filmstruck is, which is streaming media, which is where most people are getting their content these days, is troubled enough that they would have to cancel it. Uh, what about a service that tries to, the quaint uh, custom of, of selling DVDs? And Warner Archive is not the only one out there, but it's certainly the biggest one and the one where they made the most investments in terms of not only putting movies out there, but actually restoring stuff that had never been on video before. And it would be tragic if that were lost. Yeah, Warner Archive is, you know, I, I talk to people that work for Warner Archive as well, and, you know, they, they've always said that it's great that the on-demand feature is what keeps them going because they're not producing content that sits in a vault somewhere. You know, it's it's manufactured on demand, so you're not losing any money. Um, they did try streaming. You know, they they did uh, before Filmstruck. There was Warner Archive Instant, which closed right. relatively quickly, and and that never really had almost from the get go. They put very little money and time into it, and just slowly let it die. So I'm thinking Warner is just one of those that is really bad with streaming services from the sounds of it um but i mean you have so many niche play uh dvd manufacturers whether it's kino or twilight time uh, my my former employer was classic flicks that does their own distribution and and i think so many of those places need to be supported with money because it's very expensive just buying rights 
it, let alone production. And the, the thing that always irks me about have the, the, the struggle of these small companies, not, not necessarily a Warner or a Kino that has the financial backing to you know, mass release and fail. Um, but, you know, something like a classic flick, something like a Twilight Time, where there's this limited con quantity because of how much it costs. The problem that I have is that these studios, so much of their content, classic film content, rots in a vault somewhere. There's no interest in preserving it. There's no interest in releasing it. Paramount has so much stuff that they've either sold off or will not release just because they don't care. 20th Century Fox used to have a classic film arm that they have not done anything with in years. So, you know, and they see this as just a money thing, that they can sell the rights to a company and they can do what they want with it. Um, but they're not putting any money into classic films because they don't see any money in it, into it. It's the ultimate cash grab. And I think the sad thing is, is that there aren't enough companies that have the money to fight for a movie that hasn't been released ever on home video you know they don't have the money to buy the the expensive print and remaster it and produce it uh, that's that's got to have studio money but the studios don't care so where where do we fit you know in terms of getting the classic films that we want or the umpteenth special edition of the sound of music <laughs> Yeah, I, one thing about, you know, the classic film community, as I mentioned before, is it's a passionate um, um, community that's going to go out of its way to try to find this movie or this restoration or these extras with, with commentary. I, um, as a matter of course, w when I was helping curate the um, Disability Festival on Turner, I had one of my hard drives stolen um, um, with my terabyte. Uh, five years worth of, of work um, archived on there, taken from right in the middle of um, preparing that, and I had to recreate that a library all over again. And thankfully, we had already decided to do the festival, so I could I could lean on the folks at uh, TCM a little bit. Um, but you, you know, you're we're in a situation. Film fans are are in a sad situation where, with these changeovers, with these turnovers, with ownership changing um, quite rapidly and the and the priorities of the parent companies changing and not really giving um, uh, that kind of depth of attention um, to restoring or, or releasing those films you're stuck if you if you don't buy DVDs and you and, and you can't you know and you're not able to take advantage of the companies that Kristen mentioned or Flickr Alley or any of those there's no place to get these films so we're we're in a position where if you're not getting the DVDs often um, the material is is impossible to find and that's just going to get harder um, now with Filmstruck's demise something Kristen said struck me because I doing this one movie at a time. There are lots of labors of love that have happened in terms of restorations. The Film Noir Foundation is a good example where they've found a movie that they wanted to restore. Maybe they found a, an incomplete print or they found the whole thing, and they but the ownership is with the studio and they've gotten some grant money to do it. But that's one movie at a time, and that's in one specific genre. That's There are an awful lot of movies that continue to rot away in vaults and that the companies even though they won't necessarily do something with themselves, are loath to give or sell their intellectual property to somebody else who might be in a position to do something about it. 
Yeah, and the the weird thing is, is you know, the rights rights studio rights are a very convoluted thing, and I know that TCM used to m- work alongside other studios to put out TCM branded DVDs of certain movies, and they've they've ended that as well. I don't know why, but I did notice that Universal was releasing several movies that they were once teamed up with TCM to release. They're putting them out on Blu-ray on their own, but. You know, there are so many movies, if, if anybody's read Lou Luminex's series of articles on movies that are just stuck in legal legal hell because they can't, because of music rights or, or something like that, you know, there are so many movies that are either stuck up in some sort of arbitrary issue when, when you really think about it, or just that nobody releases them because the studio doesn't see any money in it and you know I'm a big fan of Veronica Lake so many of her movies are unavailable completely on DVD because Paramount does not release classic films unless there is you know rate of return Um, and, and TCM has talked numerous times about their attempts to get certain movies just on the channel movies that have never been released on DVD or Blu-ray or even home video you know they they work as hard as they can to get these movies out there in any way shape or form but it's left to us the the lovers of these movies to become the gatekeepers and the protectors whether it's taping something whether it's buying something you know even if you don't want it just supporting it with your money um i i'm not an advocate for piracy but at this point with the with the way access is just being limited to classic cinema there is an underground you know much like music uh back in you know the the 70s or the 80s when you wanted to to find you know imports and stuff there is an underground for classic films i will say completely legal youtube YouTube is a, a hotbed for classic cinema. Um, not great quality prints, but if you really are d- d- determined to see these movies, you know, that's that's how it has to be because nobody else is gonna, you know, none of the corporations are gonna do anything. It's up to the individual film fan who wants to further their film education however they, they have to. Paramount did this weird thing called the Paramount, I called it weird because it's called the Paramount Vault on YouTube. Yeah. And I, I and I call it weird because it was really difficult to know what was available. They were available for limited periods of time, so you really you, you had to be right on it to see a movie that you that you want were interested in. But I don't know what they thought they were going to get out of it. But I can't imagine that they got much. Yeah, especially because there was really, and that's what you see with some of these places that it's just a dump, you know, a dump and walk away. <laughs> where they just put all this content out and and I want to say that when I was looking at that you know a lot of it was very very hard to figure out what what you were even watching you know there's not even really great explanations of what the movies are there's no care there you know there's no there's no attempt to make it seem like these these people even care about the movies it's just you know you guys will consume the content it doesn't really it doesn't matter how we dress it up right and it's only good for you if you know what you're looking for and by some miracle you're able to actually find it right there's there's no room for the serendipity of just kind of going through the folders or going through the different pages and stumbling across something that you may not have heard of and that you want to give it a shot and that you you know that you go oh i like that director i like that actor that sounds interesting um you know that's really more and more difficult to do yeah, so my personal approach to collecting classic movies has been to 
buy DVDs when it was necessary and when I wanted to support what, especially if it was a restoration or maybe a company that hadn't put out DVDs before and all of a sudden they were doing it. Hey, I like this collection. Oh, Forbidden Hollywood. I have to buy all of those, whether I have the movies or not, because I want to support that they're doing that. Or a smaller producer that has rights to some movie that I've never seen. That's that's exciting for me. But the other thing I've done is I've recorded an awful lot of TCM and I have giant hard drives and a Plex server because I don't believe that streaming and big companies are ever going to keep what I want available. And I feel I feel like classic film fans may be unique in this way because I, I've never talked to people who are fans of other genres of film, especially of, of genres that are continuing to be made, who think like that. When I tell people I have a Plex server and six terabytes of storage, they <laughs> look at me like I'm nuts. So why don't you just watch it on streaming? Well, because that's not always an option. Yeah, well, and and that's only good for you know I've I've got a Plex server too because because it's out of necessity, right? If I want to be able to find um, these things, if I'm writing an article or if I'm doing some research for a project, um, I it, more often than not I have to go to my own library and my own server um, in order to find that material. But that takes a lot of heavy lifting, as you're saying, in recording that and then transferring it and doing doing all that kind of heavy lifting yourself. And who does that help, right? That helps me and my four friends that I shared the server with. Um, uh, so there should be more options for you people that, that want this content. I remember you were talking about um, the issues that people have um, with regard to licensing. When we were doing the projected image of history of disability in film, one of the films I definitely wanted to show was Brando's The Men, right? That was his first film. Um, a lot of historical significance beyond the fact that he portrayed somebody who was paraplegic. Um, I don't recall if it was Sony or Fox, but um, whoever had the rights to that, we, we went to them, Turner went to them, the VP of programming went to them and said, what do we need to do in order to get the rights to, to include this as part of the festival? We bent over backwards and, and tried everything that we could do just to showcase their film as a part of our festival and they wouldn't let us do it. And that's what's so frustrating because I remember I'm old enough to have collected movies before digital was viable way to transfer movies around. So VHS tapes and then DVDs and, and the like. And so I used to think in terms of, does that movie exist? Can I find it? Can I watch it? But if you're talking about distribution, there's that whole other layer of rights. Who has the rights to it? Can you talk them out of it? Uh, can you figure it out for one thing? And, and TCM has the advantage of being part of Time Warner of, of having a legal team that does nothing but that all day, plus the motivation that they have. I mean, it, it sounds like they're very much committed to, to making that effort, but I, I, I worry about them. Again, like I say, I, I worry about what Time Warner will allow them to continue to do. Well, and that's why, I mean, you need, I, I come at this not just from an audience perspective, but I come at this from a writer perspective. You know, you need to have a modicum of classic film knowledge in order to to write about classic films, um, and that's not being an elitist gatekeeper, as <laughs> I've been as I've been called. Um, that's just part of for me. That's part of doing my job. You know, that's part of you know talking about the history of pre-code and um you know Lawrence and I both attest to this you know you can't talk about how we have progressed as a country as a, a film audience unless you know the history you don't know how 
the African-American experience has been contextualized in cinema and what that means to the history of the civil rights movement if you don't know what those films are and you've never seen them. You don't know what the the wonderful stereotypes of disability are if you don't know the movies that started out in the 1930s and 1940s and post-World War II and, you know, all, all of that. So it film history is how we contextualize real history. And if you don't, if your history starts by, with 1980, then your conception of, of U.S. history, world history, is also truncated. And that's going to continue to move forward. Maybe 1980 now, it'll be 1985 and 90 and, and then on and on. Yeah. The window does not grow. And, yeah. and, and like trees, you know, um, these ideas, these stereotypes have really, really deep roots. And, and you know, part of unpacking that and, and demystifying that is going back to the, to the beginning, going back to the literal root of where was the first time this, this um, trope happened? And how did that evolve over the next five years? How did it change after, let's say, we were at war or after there were civil rights uprisings, right? You, 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 in order to kind of understand history, you have to do this kind of tug of war, this give and take, this back and forth cross-pollination between what people were seeing at the time, how that informed the movies that they were watching, and then how that might have moved society forward. So, so society sometimes moved the films forward and you got a different depiction based on what was happening in the real world, but it's just as likely uh, that whatever was happening in the real world was influenced by somebody who took a chance with a film. And, and unless you understand both aspects of that, both sides of that coin, you're only going to get an incomplete picture. Well, Lawrence, I think now's a good time for you to sort of, I'd love to hear the story of how you got the Disability Project on TCM, how you and they work together. Just dish the dirt, if you will, <laughs> because I'd, I'd love to hear it. I, I watched it and I remember being amazed and delighted that it happened and I sort of was secretly hoping it wouldn't be the only time but but tell us all why well, I, I don't think it'll be the only time I, I I think they've 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 promised and I believe them that we'll do more I think it, I, enough time has to pass so that so that you know we can come at it from a different angle what happened was one of my colleagues at a nonprofit that I worked with in New York City I was living in New York City at the time Cindy Gordon um, deserves the credit for the initial idea she noticed um, she worked at a group called Alliance for inclusion in the arts and she noticed she was a TCM watcher as well she's still with us she hasn't passed on or anything but they had done Native Americans in film they had done um, um, the Latino community in film so they'd done a lot of these different areas and and we were sort of musing and chatting at one point and 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 said you know everybody gets an award for playing a disabled person why haven't they done disability in film because there's decades of material there and a lot of different angles in, in which you can approach it and so Cindy took the initiative and and reached out to TCM and said hey we have this idea um, what do you think about it um, um, and they were you they the, to their credit they were absolutely on it from the get-go they said yes you're absolutely right um, what direction should we go um, um, Cindy then handed it over to me and I gave them some ideas in terms of how we might want to look at it and how we might want to break down a festival. So um, that began a process where, <laughs> in which I watched 237 movies across eight different decades 
um, to start to narrow down that list to the 21, it was supposed to be 20, but we, we snuck another one in there, um, um, that we could show as part of that festival, that month-long festival. And, and it, it, you know, the great thing about working with the folks at TCM is they, they knew what they didn't know. And, and so while they could tell you who the producer was or who the director was or even sometimes who the gaffer was um, of that film, um, they were very keen on, you know, spotlighting films about disability from a disability-centered perspective. So the, the approach that I came up with was, you think you know the miracle worker, well, <laughs> find out what you don't know about Helen Keller, right? That she was um, a socialist, she was a co-founder of the ACLU, she was wanted or watched by, the, by, the, um, by you know, J. Edgar Hoover and those guys, the FBI watch list. She was very fond of whiskey. Um, she introduced Akita dogs to the United States, you know, so we were able to show the miracle worker because you can't really do a festival on disability and film without certain touchstones. I mean, I think you'd have to show miracle worker. You'd have to show best years of our lives. There's certain films that just kind of hold their space and, and that were really significant for their time and remain so today. But we could also say, you know what happened at the water pump with Helen. Do you know about her later life? And then we could contextualize sort of her evolution and, and meet the audience, TCM's audience, sort of where they were um, in terms of their love of film, but then lead them where we wanted them to go, which was understanding the greater perspective. Did you have a philosophy or a thought about how much to show a film that put disability in terms of stereotype and how much to show films that were more positive as, as models? Or was it just through the introduction and through the curation that were you able to, to contextualize those films? It, it was a mixture of those things. We felt that you couldn't do a history properly without showing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. If if we wouldn't be doing history, I think, justice, if we just showed the things that we like, because that wouldn't be illustrative of um, actually how society was. And it seemed more important to me to unpack where the culture was in any given time and maybe how that was changing. And 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 so we would try and the the other so we would have certain things like a, a movie like an affair to remember for example, um, always gets viewers when it airs on TCM. It's one of the most popular movies that they tend to show. Whenever it's shown, people watch it. They don't think about it generally as a disability film, right? It's people that like Cary Grant or whatever the the situation might be. And 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 so we would talk about. Well, why was it that she felt inclined to stay home? And, and, and what was this mysterious ailment that is never really revealed? And, and why did people feel that disability was something that should be hidden? And, and, and so we would use um, sort of the, the culture of TCM to get our foot in the door um, and, and maybe point out some things that were problematic about some of their favorite movies. But the other thing that we, get, we got to do, and this was more exciting, um, um, especially in lieu of this conversation we're having about distribution, is that we've got that vault. We've got that wonderful library and that fantastic vault. And so there were a number of films that I'd only read about 
and never had an opportunity to see because they'd never been released on VHS or, or later DVD. They certainly weren't streaming at that time. And um, part of what we were able to do because we weren't able to show films like The Men with Brando is, is that we could go into the vault and say, are there films out here that are significant or should be better known um, that people haven't had an opportunity to see? I'll give you a couple examples. One of them was a film called Sign of the Ram, starring an actress named Susan Peters. Now, Susan Peters um, had a, an accident um, um, with, a, with a gun. Um, they were hunting, and she became paraplegic. She had starred with Lionel Barrymore in some of the Dr. Kildare movies. She was up and coming in her own career. All of a sudden, lo and behold, she became a wheelchair user. Um, the studio bought the rights to a, a gothic novel called Sign of the Ram, um, um, which featured sort of the matriarch of the family, um, who was a wheelchair user, um, at for Peters, because they liked her, and they wanted to give a vehicle for her. And this, this film is amazing. One, um, Peters chews up the set. It's a bravura performance. She's Joan Crawford. Um, um, you know, on wheels. She's hell on wheels, quite literally, in terms of the way she manipulates this family. And it's this wonderful, uh, you know, gothic drama that, that nobody had ever seen because it had never been released on DVD. And, and, and so we got a chance to put her career in perspective, not only by talking about Sign of the Ram, but also what she did after Sign of the Ram. She was the, the, um, one of the first stars of the soap operas, of a soap opera called um, Miss Susan, I believe. And, and it was also, I think, Martinsville, USA, um, back when soap operas were 15 minutes long. She was an attorney, um, so, so a working woman in a day when that was uncommon, certainly wasn't seen on TV much. Um, so she was an attorney, she was a wheelchair user, and she had two different male suitors who were vying for her affection, right? Again, most people never heard of Susan Peters, and they didn't know that she was a pioneer of TV. So we felt if we could use um, that festival to kind of highlight hidden aspects of um, not only American history, but disability in American history, um, then people could have a broader perspective. Sign of the Ram is one of the most memorable movies from that festival for me, maybe because I hadn't seen it. And also the, the Joan Crawford comparison is completely apt. I can, I can imagine Joan Crawford. What, what is the one, uh, Joan Crawford in the Beach House? I can't even think. The one where she's just apt. It's, it's, I don't think it's The Damn Don't Cry, but there, there's another Crawford movie from that era, because that movie is like 1947, that, that is very much like that. And then the, the Su Susan Peters is hell on wheels in that movie. It's kind of amazing. But what, what was the research project process like for you? You said you watched a couple of hundred movies, but were you digging them up and saying to TCM, I'd like these? Were they helping you or was it difficult to find examples of disability? Yeah, by the, well, it wasn't difficult to find examples of disability. It was hard to find some of these films. Um, so the initial process... When I started watching them, the idea that I had, and it evolved, but the idea that I had was to look at the films by decade. So look at the silence, see if there were any trends that sort of rose to the top there, and then look at the 30s and see what rose to the top there. And how did that change in the 40s or post-World War II? What happened after Korea? 
What happened after Vietnam? How did things change with the civil rights movement or into the 70s? Um, uh, and what happened, you know, as we went into into 1980 and, and we ended because we had to put a stop on it somewhere um, with 1990, which was the year the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. And so we, we went through the silent era. Um, all the way through um, um, eight different decades to try to do that perspective. It became pretty clear, though, as I got into the 30s, I think, as I was doing my, my watching of the films. I, I, so I have a pretty good library on my own. Um, so I started with that, and then I, I started to acquire things. The, the underground networks that, that Kristen's talking about, the, a lot of those folks were absolutely invaluable in helping me locate some of the films that I wanted to, to take a look at to decide if it was something we could show. And then, it, and then there were films that were just almost impossible to find, like Eyes in the Night, um, which was about this uh, blind detective, Duncan Mac McLean, and his faithful seeing eye dog, Friday, um, and how they unfoiled this Nazi plot. Um, I think that was a 1942 film. And so we went to Turner with those, um, basically to fill in slots for the films we couldn't get the rights to, um, um, which turned out to be kind of a, um, a, a good serendipity, kind of a happy accident. Um, because we, I don't even know that we would have thought about screening those films if we'd gotten the rights to show some of the things we weren't allowed to. So it was a mixture of all of the above. We really did everything that we could to, to make it not only um, um, comprehensive in terms of what was happening in society, but I also felt that it was important to show the different types of disabilities. So we would make sure that we had mobility-related disabilities, wheelchair users, sensory-related disabilities, folks who were blind, folks who were deaf, intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities, um, psychiatric disabilities. I knew that if we had 20 films and we snuck in Sign of the Ram, which made, which made it our 21st film, but if we had 20 films that we had to do the best we could with showing a little bit of everything and finding those touchstones which could be illustrative of other aspects, either of what was happening in movies or what was happening in society or how those things played off of each other. Well, it was a great series, and I really wish you luck in getting another version of it. I assume that you'll have a different angle or some some, some movies that are at the top of your list that you didn't get to show last time that you want to include. But I wonder if, if the, uh, the the marketing part of TCM comes and says, well, we have to show A Fair to Remember, or we have to show something that's sort of been proven popular? Do you feel like that's going to be an issue? Or? I, I don't think it would be an issue. I think that there's enough to work with with, uh, with the, the, the material itself that, you know, you can find something to talk about in the intro or the outro um, um, to tie it to the bigger picture. So, yeah, that, that really didn't become an issue when we were programming this. It was what's going to be best, what's going to get the greatest number of eyeballs on the series itself, and what's going to give us an opportunity to, to hopefully lead a discussion um, um, that we would just be able to begin. We could drop a few pointed questions, we could leave a few things unanswered, and the idea was that maybe people would ruminate over it and chew over it a little bit and start to ask these questions themselves. Did any of those films happen to be audio described or have they been since? I assume a lot of them are closed captioned. This is one of the things I'm most proud of with the Projected Image uh, History of Disability and Film Project. Not only was every film captioned, um, every film was audio described. We were. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Here, I didn't know here's that. A, here's a little bit of inside baseball that I've never revealed publicly before, but we were right at the 11th hour getting ready to finalize all the details of the contracts and the agreements and what have you. And and so we were 
were talking about the logistics of the festival, when we wanted to put it on. We decided to put it on in October, so we're just now on the sixth anniversary, which is Disability Employment Awareness Month, and then it sort of morphed into Disability Awareness Month for a lot of different groups. So we decided to do it in October um, to have that natural hook. As we were finalizing everything, um, I, I, I was talking to Charlie Tabish, who's the v VP of Programming, and, and I said, so I said, Charlie, what are we going to do in terms of access to the films? And, you know, everything, he said, well, everything's going to be captioned, that's fine. A and I said, that's great, but what about audio description? And there was this pause <laughs> for a moment. And, and I think what had occurred was that they hadn't thought about um, blind viewership, right? And the idea was, well, if you're going to have movies about blind people, blind people should be able to enjoy those same movies. And I said, Charlie, do you, do you want people to be upset and angry and, and causing a fuss because they can't enjoy the films? Or do you want them publicizing, promoting, and being very excited that you, you Turner Classic Movies, were the most inclusive? Nobody, to my knowledge, uh, at, the, at the cable channel like Turner, with Turner's clout, had ever done anything like that before, making everything both captioned and audio described, and then having an actual disabled person doing the intros and the outros along with Ben Mankiewicz. And without missing a beat, Charlie said, you're absolutely right, and cut a check right there, or said he was gonna cut a check to, for additional funds that had not been allocated that they hadn't thought about to make sure that all of those films were audio described. So Turner, you know, the folks at TCM knew what they didn't know and they bent over backwards to make the films as accessible as possible. That's so great. Wow. My, my respect for TCM just continues to grow. <laughs> I had no idea. Kristen, I, I, earlier when we were talking about Filmstruck and subsequently access to films. I think I was pretty gloomy and doomy about it. And, and you talked a little bit about supporting uh, those companies that are producing DVDs, especially small ones that folks haven't heard of necessarily. But I, I guess I would ask, in addition, what other advice would you offer to somebody who is a classic film fan or wants to be a classic film fan and either has already cut the cord or is just wants to make sure they don't lose access to, to, to classic films? Well, I mean, there's there's a couple things. Um, I, I do Sling and Hulu, um, both of which have TCM channels. Hulu actually has TCM East and West Coast feeds. Both of them have on-demand. I would say um, Sling's on-demand is a bit better than Hulu's on-demand. Um, but those are both options where if you, if you want that cable-esque uh, atmosphere of having TCM, those are some good options, good replacements for significantly cheaper. Um, also, as I mentioned, supporting the, the niche labels that come out. Um, and I'd also say just getting involved with the community. I mean, I, I do think that the classic film community is gonna be a lot like the music snobs of of the 70s and 80s and even even into the 90s and the 2000s when uh when you know napster and all of that came into being just that concept of hearing about classic movies and trying to find some way to to get access to them you know some i, I think the question i always get from people is what classic movies should i see and i mean i have recommendations but a lot of it is is just you know immersing yourself with like-minded people and hearing them talk about something and being like, well, that sounds interesting. How do I get it? Um, so so there's, there's that communal aspect to it um, and just kind of borrowing from others if you can. I'd also say um, the, your library 
if you are fortunate to have a local library that's that has dvds um i i still get several classic film uh you know, weird brand uh, labels from my library. I know Canopy and Hoopla, if your library subscribes to those services. So there are there are ways out there. Um, if you're committed to learning more about classic films, you will find them. Yeah, and just get, get on the message boards, get in the groups um, that are on, you know, your different, like, like your Facebook pages and places like that. They're, they're, um, the, people will help you. They'll give you ideas, you know, and let you know. The best thing about um, um, services like Canopy, for example, is all you need is a library card. And if you've got um, something like Roku, you can simply add the channel and it's free right you don't have to pay anything so and they've got i think one of the most extensive libraries particularly of things like documentaries um that i have ever seen and and so if you've got kind of an obscure or kind of an idiosyncratic interest in this area or that area of film if you look around um you can find places to see those things yeah i uh, have a job that's affiliated with a university and i found out recently we all have access to canopy probably through the library system i'm not sure exactly so you may have access to canopy and not even know it and it's a great service so well at the end of each episode of parallel we do a final question a one more thing and i thought what would be more appropriate for one more thing this time than to ask what is the most recent classic film you've seen and how did you acquire it define classic in any way you wish to um kristen so I am actually trying to get as many movies watched on Filmstruck as I can. So I've I've <laughs> uh, been watching. Um, yes. So <laughs> so the last the last classic films uh, I watched back to back. I watched um, the Passionate Friends from uh, David Lean. I think it's 1949, which is not available on DVD. Uh, so if you have Filmstruck, you should make time for that. It's a really great. Uh, romantic drama and then I also watched Ken Russell's The Devils from 1971 I had never seen it before and I, I'm not really sure what I expected but I think it met what I expected um, so it's a very <laughs> fascinating movie so yeah those are those are the two that I would recommend how about you, Lawrence? Uh, the last classic movie that I watched was a, was an old Preston Sturgis gem that, that I had never seen from, uh, I believe, 1948, which was uh, Unfaithfully Yours, um, in which I Rex, need to see that. Rex Harrison stars as this symphony conductor who all of a sudden gets this idea in his head that his wife is having an affair, and there's this, there's this fantastic, it's this amazing mix of, of he has these sort of murderous fantasies about how he's going to to get back at, at, at you know his adulterous oh, wow. wife and that that play <laughs> out as he's conducting the orchestra so everyone's sort of watching him and going wow that was amazing I've never seen you quite so animated but you don't know what's going on inside his head which is him trying to figure out how he's going to exact revenge upon this affair, which may or may not be actually happening. Um, and you don't find out until the end of the movie whether or not it does. So it's it's really just this amazing gem from, from Preston Sturgis that for whatever miracle, uh, a reason I, I had never uh, had an opportunity to see before, and a friend um, uh, 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 recommended it to me, and I'm glad that they did because it's a, it's a fun performance. It's a really good film. 
if you hadn't told me who directed it, I would have made a guess and I would have said Michael Powell or somebody because, you know, Rex Harrison, I don't even remember if he was still in England at that time or what, but that just seems like something Michael Powell or David Lean would do. <laughs> so mine is um, a little pedestrian, I guess, but what I have this Plex server, which I love, 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 and I, and I access it through what I have on Sunday afternoons when I want a movie to watch, but I don't know what I want to watch. I sometimes will do a somewhat random version of this and I will say, what year am I interested? What year do I feel like? And I, I have a weird savant skill in my house that I can tell within a couple of minutes uh, and I give myself a here one side or the other two years. Uh, I can tell you what year a movie was made pretty much in the classic era. And so I feel pretty good about saying, well, if I want to watch 1952, I kind of know a little bit what I'm going to get. Uh, so I picked 1952 yesterday and I ended up with The Girl in White, which is Ginger Roger Ooh. as uh, June Allison, sorry, <laughs> which is June Allison. would have been better with Ginger Rogers, to be honest, which is June <laughs> Allison as are. a doctor. Yes. <laughs> June Allison as a doctor. And she's, uh, I can't figure out exactly when it's supposed to have taken place. I thought it was modern. And then there's a point at which a horse-drawn ambulance comes out of this hospital where she's working. And it's like, oh, wait, we're not in 1950, are we? So I'm not quite sure where we were. But she is the first female doctor to have worked in this New York hospital. And she has a love interest who's also a doctor who's trying to have her not be a doctor. And I, without spoiling the movie, I'll just say it doesn't go the way that a lot of these movies go in a story like that. So that's something. It's not a great movie, and June Allison seems kind of grumpy throughout it, but I enjoyed it primarily because it was not entirely predictable. Yeah, and 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 for those and for those, I, I didn't say where I watched it, but for the, for for those who um, would like to see Unfaithful Years and 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 like me had somehow missed it along the way, I I happened to watch it on Amazon, but I'm looking on the internet now, and it looks like it's also available on YouTube and Google Play and Vudu and iTunes. So there are multiple ways that you can oh, find this know. film. Well, I'm going to watch it because it sounds interesting. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Kristen and Lawrence, for joining me on this special episode of Parallel Special in the sense that we got to talk about classic movies, one of my very favorite things. And before I let you go, I want to give you each a chance to plug your work, tell everybody where they can find you online. Lawrence? Uh, probably the best place to find me online is Twitter. Uh, the easiest thing to do is just do, do my initials all scrunched up in the beautiful way that only Twitter can, which is L. Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R Long, L-O-N-G. That's L. Carter Long all smooshed together one word um, if you want to find more about the work that I do when I'm not talking about movies you can check out the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund that's D-R-E-D-F dot org or just search my name who knows all kinds of wacky stuff will pop up thank you so much thank you and hopefully we'll be hearing about you doing another disability spotlight on TCM in the future Kristen how about you Where can, people can find your work lots of places I'm guessing oh yeah I'm I'm everywhere and to, to name every place would be we'd be here for a while so the easiest place is just to follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film I publish links to my writing when they pop up um, if you want to hear more of my rantings um, if you want to hear me talk about classic film I do a podcast called ticklish business that's it ticklishbusiness.podbean.com I also do a weekly film news podcast with a, a group of amazing women writers that we talk about the patriarchy and film news and all the our hate, mutual hatred for a star is born that's at Citizen Dame <laughs> um, which is at citizendame.podbean.com and both of those are available with wherever you listen to podcasts iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify all of that 
Very cool. You can follow this show at Parallel Pods, all one word, on Twitter. You can go to relay.fm slash parallel if for some reason you are not subscribed. And if you'd like to chat with me on Twitter, I'm Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. We'll be back in two weeks with another show. Until then, we'll see you next time.